This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. As the pandemic raged last fall, some families decided not to enroll their kids in public online-only kindergarten. But according to enrollment data, white families were twice as likely as black and Latino families to skip kindergarten in favor of any number of options, charter schools, private schools, another year in daycare, or just keeping their kids at home. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Up next, the Oregonian and Oregon Live's Eder Camposano talks about his recent analysis that found state enrollment for kindergartners plunged 16% led by a steep decrease in white student enrollment in particular. We talked about what that phenomenon means, why Oregonians should care, how kindergartners are faring, and in the second half of the show, about when elementary school students and others may return to the classroom part-time. Here's our conversation. Edder Camposano, thanks so much for taking time to talk today. Always a pleasure. Glad to be here. Edder, there's so much talk nationally about getting kids back in school. But first, let's talk about a decision parents made way back last fall about whether to enroll their kids in remote kindergarten classes or wait a year in hopes of starting their education with in-person classes. Um, You looked at that question. And what did you find? So what I found after taking a look at the statewide enrollment data that the Oregon Department of Education released a couple of weeks ago now was that although enrollment in Oregon's public kindergarten classrooms dropped by um, something like 16% statewide, Mm -hmm. there were disparities in the number of white children versus children of color that those percentages drop by. So for example, statewide, Oregon schools saw a steep kindergarten drop of about 18% from last year. Whereas for Latino kindergarten enrollments, that was about 9%. And Black kindergarten enrollments, it was uh, 7%. And so state officials largely attributed that to parents deciding to either hold off or skip the kindergarten year this year Mm -hmm. to not have to deal with the whole virtual school thing and to hopefully, fingers crossed, have their children in a physical classroom for that first year of school. Now, when you were looking at that data, did you have a sense that this is going to be what you found just from talking to parents and kind of, you know, reading coverage and just knowing the beat? Frankly, I didn't. I mean, Portland Public Schools in November, um, the chief of systems, Russell Brown, told the school board that they had already seen, at the time, about a 16% drop in their enrollment among kindergarten classrooms, um, and that the point differences were pretty minor uh, between white families, Black and Latino families. I mean, he said that they were there, but that they were minor. And I mean, in, in PPS, it was about four points below the white rate is what Latino and Black enrollment fell by. So in Looking for the data, I mean, whenever my editor, Betsy Hammond, and I look at these statewide releases, I mean, we really are 
looking for anything that jumps out at us. And fortunately, the Department of Education disaggregates this information based on race. Um, and the numbers were like, they just jumped off the spreadsheet at you. Yeah. I mean, as soon as you saw the aggregate breakdown of those disparities and those percentages, I mean, it's like, wow, it was, it was huge. The, the only legwork that the Department of Education did not do with its initial release is mm -hmm. break down those differences by, by district. It was just kind of one big statewide, um, picture. So I just went back to them, asked them if they had the same thing, but on a district level, and they, they sent it over. And that's where I found the differences between districts that, that were pretty wide. So what does this discrepancy say about, you know, our broader society as we're dealing with this pandemic? Well, I spoke with Lillian Duran. Um, she's an associate dean for academic affairs at the University of Oregon's College of Education. Um, and so one of the things that we talked about is that she she deals primarily with English as a second language families and mm -hmm. with migrant communities. And, you know, she noted that by and large, when you when, when you look at those communities in particular, yeah, you see families and households with a lower income threshold, right? So people who might not have the option to say enroll in a private school or who might not even know that they had the option of um, sitting out that first year. You know, Oregon is one of 13 states where kindergarten enrollment isn't compulsory, so you don't have to do it. Um, and I kept thinking back to my time in you know, in K-12, right. my family moved here from Mexico. In our culture, there's this really, really strong sort of respect for the education profession where it's like, oh, if the teacher says this is what we should do, then the teacher knows best. And so I could imagine that in my situation, my mom would have gotten the releases from the McMinnville School District and said, oh, this is what we're doing for school this year. We're going to go ahead and do it, right? So there's that sort of difference in culture among those among those groups. But one of the things that Professor Dudan pointed out that didn't come through with the Oregon Department of Education data is they don't include socioeconomic data. So when you're looking at graduation rates, for instance, or mm -hmm. when you get a release about uh, testing rates from the Department of Education, it includes the percentages of students that are economically disadvantaged. So those who qualify for a free or reduced lunch, for example. And this data didn't include that. And she was saying that if you could kind of create a Venn diagram, I guess, of families that were economically disadvantaged and were, you know, Latino, Black, even, you know, white families, you would probably see a strong correlation just because those families without a lot of resources, they, they, they can't again, you know, enroll in private school or have maybe have the means to not start their children's education right away. Yeah. And so some of those families who, who do put their, like you said, it's either going to private school or maybe keeping their kid in a, in a daycare another year longer. Right. Yeah. It's, it's su super interesting. So there's a lot that we don't know, right. We have to make, uh, you know, assumptions about, cause we don't have that socioeconomic data connected to the kindergarten enrollment at this time. Right. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that both Professor Durian said and a lot of what you hear from communities of color is that, you know, they don't want to be treated as a monolith. And I think all too often that sort of comes out in school board meetings when you're listening to school district officials 
sort of talk about who they're trying to communicate with in order to get a full view of who wants to come back, who doesn't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even in the sort of reopening fights playing out on, on, on Facebook, you've got one set of parents saying, we need to school open the schools for the good of the BIPOC students out there. And another group saying, well, no, we need to not have a wide-scale reopening of schools because BIPOC families disproportionately live in, say, multi-generational households. So there's considerations that you might not necessarily have to make in sending your child to class versus another family that's not, you know, we don't have a good snapshot of what the, what the risks are there. Do, do we have any sense of what this racial discrepancy may mean for kindergarten classes going forward? Um, you know, it sounds like we might have more older white kindergartners in some districts, I guess. And um, do we have a sense of what that means and, and you know, what it would mean for a class dynamic? Not quite yet. You know, there there are a bunch of different scenarios that you can picture, one of which you just laid out in that you could have older white students kind of vying for a teacher's attention with with younger Black and Latino students. You could also have students who whose parents opted not to do kindergarten whatsoever and go directly into first grade. And early childhood experts that I've spoken to really, really emphasize the point that the importance of kindergarten and first grade, second grade, third grade, is that children in those age ranges are not just learning, you know, basic concepts and functions like mm-hmm. colors, the alphabet, learning how to read. They're learning how to go to school. And if you have an entire year removed from that process, right, where you're not consistently in front of a teacher, even if it's just virtual, and you're not getting that sort of those cues to say, this is when I need to pay attention. This is basically how to navigate my day. You're starting with this sort of deficit in the number of students coming into the first grade who, for lack of a better term, just don't quite know how to do school yet. Plus, we're going to have this whole generation who, regardless of of race or, or social economic background, are going to be, I don't know, it's going to be weird. It's going to be different <laughs> going back, I would imagine. Or maybe, maybe I guess, experts would say that kids are really, they're more malleable than adults and they, they'll kind of snap back quickly. I don't know. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens. Right. Yeah. And I guess the silver lining, if you want to see it here, um, is that children of such young ages, like they don't, they don't know. So they don't know that school was super, super different before the pandemic. And so you're working from a different baseline. And there are these larger conversations about what school should look like post pandemic. And at least in one sense, you don't really have to worry about what it used to look like when you're introducing these children into classrooms. Should we be concerned about this dynamic? Is is that what, you know, the experts that, that you've spoken with and parents and educators, are, are they concerned about this dynamic of uh, the, the difference in the uh, demographics? Professor Dunan wasn't so much concerned about what these demographic differences would mean in terms of what the actual classroom experience will look like. Mm-hmm. What she was sort of worried about is whether districts would make sure that they're pumping as many resources into, you know, doing outreach with um, 
migrant families again because that's the population she primarily works with um so much of the literature that you get when you're about to enroll your kindergartner in the state of oregon is you know primarily in english and she wants to see districts make sure that they're catering to families who speak a different language in the home that they're doing outreach that they're sort of putting together these reopening plans with input from the community because she feels that she doesn't see that enough in her research and in her studies. So, you know, she told me that all too often what she sees is community input acting as this sort of box that administrators feel like they need to check off without really actively listening and shaping policies or shaping their eventual plans around the the feedback that they get. So that's to her, that's sort of been the biggest sticking point, you know, it's this sort of active participation and seeking out of input. So we talked about the parents and kind of what they're juggling, whether, you know, they're working from home or they're working out in the community and have been working these essential jobs for, you know, a year now. What do we know about the kids? I mean, do we have any sense of how kids are faring? So there have been, you know, multiple studies and even anecdotally, you know, all across the board, teachers, parents, students I've spoken with say distance learning doesn't cut it. It is not anywhere near as effective as the in-person experience. Um, And so, you know, you're seeing a growing number of rallies at school headquarters. There was one in Beaverton just this week. Um, Parents and students showing up to say, open our schools to some degree. And the groups that put these rallies on, I mean, their main sort of push is to say, make it optional, make it voluntary. We're not pressing for a wide scale reopening and for you to just mm-hmm. cram kids into classrooms. We're asking you to listen to the science and, and and do it in a meaningful scientific way, but not forcing people who don't want to do it into a classroom. And, you know, again, you, you, you hear stories of children who feel isolated because they're not getting face-to-face time with their peers or their teachers. Most of the younger students in particular that I talked to say that they missed their teacher. That was kind of the main thing at the end of last year. And educators have told me this year that, you know, it is harder to forge a connection with a child that you see through a screen who, you know, doesn't always have that one-to-one engagement with you because again, you know, they're staring at um, a virtual representation of, of, of who you are. Yeah. And that, that sentence, you said, I miss my teacher that, I mean, that's really, that hits home, right? I mean, these are, these are people who are um, very active, uh, important role models in all students' lives, especially when they're younger. The loss of that in-person time is kind of incalculable. Yeah. Let's take a break and talk more with uh, Edgar Camposano, education reporter for the Oregonian and Oregon Live. Okay, Edder, we've talked a bit about elementary school students. When are they likely going back to some form of in-person learning in, let's just say, Portland Public? Portland Public Schools this week laid out what that hybrid, you know, half-day lesson is going to look like um, Mm -hmm. for its elementary schoolers. And those plans should you know, infection rates stay where they are. That's what district officials everywhere basically tell me, you know, the plans that we're putting out there are tentative based on where infections are right 
now. If we see a surge, sorry, but we're going to have to change course. Mm-hmm. In PPS, the tentative date to, to start rolling those offerings out for younger learners is April 8th. And that's kind of around the same time that a lot of other districts, say for Lake Oswego and for Westland Wilsonville, are getting ready to head into the classroom. So in in those two districts, it's February 23rd, 22nd, but all across the board, basically, in every other district in the metro area, early April, after spring break, basically, is when you can expect to see kindergartners and through fifth graders um, doing some sort of in-person instruction. What about older kids, middle school or high school kids? Is there any scenario where those kids are going back in a hybrid fashion during this school year? So officials in both Lake Oswego and Westland Wilsonville, again, have basically laid out more solid dates and plans than than their peer districts, um, saying that after they phase in elementary schoolers, middle schoolers will be following, followed by high schoolers. Uh, Hillsboro has also sort of hinted at when high schoolers will be able to return. And Portland Public has said that, you know, it's shooting for a hybrid instruction for middle school students and also high school students. However, that district hasn't laid out any firm plans or dates yet, just said, you know, information to come. So, you know, an analysis of about 10 Portland area districts and their plans that, that we did earlier in the month showed that, yeah, nobody, at least as of mid to late January, really had super, super solid, uh, tangible plans to bring high schoolers back in. And the reason why administrators say it's so difficult is because the Oregon Department of Education has two guidelines in particular for how you're supposed to operate a school during the pandemic. One of them is that you can only have a limited number of students inside a classroom at a given time. And you have to give 35 square feet of space to every person in that room. And in PPS, administrators say that your average classroom can maybe accommodate 10 students that way. So that's thing number one. Thing number two is that Students may only come into contact with up to 100 unique people every week. So if you're doing your standard um, high school schedule, right, you know, you've got like anywhere between five and eight classes per day, that really limits the number of classes you can be in at a given time. And I mean, moving all of these bodies and giving them 35 square feet of space um, yeah, it'd be really, really difficult to do that. And so th- th- those are kind of the hurdles that administrators say they have to get over or have ODE slightly lower before they can really, really, really do this on any wide, meaningful scale. What other pressures are at play here, Edder, and the whole back-to-school or, or not back-to-school calculus? So for one thing, you know, you've got families that, that want completely different things, right? Um, you have parents who are really gung-ho about reopening, who have seen other states open their schools without seeing any sort of meaningful um, spread of infection. And, you know, even the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has come out and said, teachers do not absolutely have to be vaccinated before you can reopen a school. And again, you know, you've seen states like Utah, like Rhode Island, 
open their schools and not have any huge kind of spike in in transmissions. And there's a, an incredible body of research out there now a year after the pandemic started that does show that the danger of reopening a school and having any sort of meaningful infection spread through a, throughout a community only exists if that spread is already wide in the community, right? So if you've already got huge, huge numbers of COVID in your community, Mm -hmm. you probably shouldn't open your school. Whereas if you've got a low transmission rate in your county or in your city, uh, opening your school is not going to add to it. So, you know, there's just, yeah, again, there's been a body of research that shows that if you have community transmission at a low rate, then schools, um, for lack of a better term, I mean, schools should be able to, to reopen. And as you said at the outset, right, um, of, of that response that, you know, not everyone agrees, right? There, there's been this assumption that teachers are the ones holding back the back to school movement. But you reported on a survey from the Reynolds School District that found a significant number of parents out there weren't sure that they would send their kids back, right? If uh, in-person learning uh, resumed. Oh, yeah. So the Reynolds School District actually put out a survey for all of its families, broke it down by school. And for example, for elementary families, so families who have at least one child in elementary schools, some 52% said that they would be willing to send their child back into a classroom if the district started a you know two hour per day hybrid instruction offering. And so another 48% said that they either weren't sure or that they wouldn't. And 16% straight up said no. So about one in eight families said, no, I will absolutely not send my child back to the classroom. And some of the survey responses, so parents had the option of writing a little something and saying why they wouldn't send their kid back, Mm -hmm. ranged from, you know, I'm I'm still afraid of community spread. I don't want my child to contract COVID to we live in a multi-generational household. And, you know, if my fifth grader comes back and is sick, then, you know, I have to figure it out because we take care of my dad, for example. And yet some families also said, well, for two hours a day, you want me to rearrange my entire schedule? No, I don't feel like it's worth it. And so you've got this entire range of reasons even parents are skeptical of a hybrid reopening, which is, you know, really the most that any Portland area district will be able to do because infection rates are are still too high, according to the Department of Education, to really have anything as it was before. We've watched as uh, other districts, big districts like Chicago, for example, this last week, um, it, you know, it was uh, very close to a strike and ne- they reached an agreement and things are going to proceed forward. What's your take, you know, as we look to the weeks ahead, do you think there's going to be any more high profile disputes on this or do you think that ultimately people will come to some sort of agreement? Well, you know, it's been sort of a predictable push and pull for the last few months. I mean, if we remember back to January, the the Lake Oswego district was the first in in the metro area to say, we are for sure opening our, our, our schools to the littles in early February, and this is our plan. And, you know, this is all based on the, the governor's latest guidance. And a few days after that, the teachers union issued this fiery letter that was basically, we don't want to be responsible for the death of our families. Mm. And so after that pushback, 
the district reversed course um, because originally the superintendent had said, uh, you know, we don't need to vaccinate our, our workforce before we return. She switched that to, okay, we need to vaccinate our teachers. And now that we have the vaccine schedule, you know, we'll launch on our previously announced plans when everybody has been vaccinated. And a similar thing happened in PPS where hours before the district released its hybrid reopening plans, you know, saying early April is when we're going to have young kids in, in, in the classrooms. Again, the teachers union said, well, we, we were not told about this and this is not something we discussed. And you've got another, you know, another brouhaha the coming week where the teachers union is really pushing back against reopening guidelines that it said it had not negotiated with the district. So in terms of whether or not there will be an agreement on just what that looks like anytime soon, I'm not altogether sure. You know, there's bargaining sessions are ongoing, at least at PPS. And it's, you know, the, the kind of big sticking points here are ventilation, you know, whether educators feel like they can enter a classroom and, and spend a considerable amount of time actually teaching versus sort of making sure that kids aren't getting too close to each other, that they have their masks on right. And, you know, a, a good chunk of Portland Public Schools educators are also parents, you know, and that's something that just doesn't enter the discourse very often when you're talking about school reopenings, right? So if you have a, a, a teacher, if you have an educator who has a child and has to go into the classroom, where does that kid go, right? <laughs> yeah, it is going to be a logistical challenge for, for everyone and plenty of stuff for you to write about in, in coming weeks. You know, thanks so much for uh, your expertise and taking time to talk about it. For sure. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. I shared a link to Edder's story about kindergartners in the episode notes. If you like this show, leave us a five-star rating and review an Apple Podcasts. Or tell a friend. The best way to support our journalism is through a subscription to OregonLive.com. You can do that by visiting OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.